Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before we kick off the fifth part of Calling the Shots with Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross, a few words about our friends at Bear Cricket. Uh, Daniel, it's a good time to be talking about a cricket bat manufacturer because... We're going to have a cricket season in 2020. Now, for the last couple of months, that was unclear, but I'm thrilled to know that people can actually buy a bare cricket bat and there's every chance they'll get to use it this year. There really is, isn't there? Uh, we now know you can get up to six people, is it now, in a net. Mm. Um, I've seen some some people playing out in the common, in obviously the right clusters, and you can sense the excitement, you can smell it, you can feel it. Uh, just the joy that getting out there and playing again will give you. And many of you may have been delaying your purchase of your new kit, wondering, well, when is cricket going to happen? I think we may even get, you never know, whisper it quietly, actual sort of friendly matches between local teams before the end of the season. Mm. And there is nothing more glorious in this world, my friend, than opening up the cellophane wrapper on a pair of gloves or just stroking the new and delicious willow that's soft and perfectly planed. What better time, quite frankly, to reignite your enthusiasm with Cricket Kit than right now? bearcricket.co.uk is where you need to go. 10% discount for calling the shots listeners by simply putting in calling the shots. I had a net today, Daniel. I didn't do much because my shoulder is still bung, but I was involved in rolling my arm over very gently and our colleague and friend, Vatushan Ahantaraja, was wearing a pair of bear cricket pads down the other end and they looked absolutely splendid, as do all the bats from the bear cricket range. Just a few things to say about bear. Beautiful bits of kit. Just lovely, well-made, handmade, intimate. Uh, the wood comes out of a private forest there in West Yorkshire where the company's made. It's not like the mass-manufactured cricket bats. This is a, an alternative option. There is that intimacy, which you kind of sense through the social media channels as well. They've got their Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all there at Bear Cricket. We'll put that into the show notes. But Adam Brown, who's an ECB Level 3 performance coach, uh, he, he runs the operation there. And they're, and they're really big on making sure that people who buy the bats or buy the kit feel like they're part of the Bear Cricket family. And we've really felt that with having them associated with our show through Calling the Shots. Oh, we really have. And, you know, it's a family with some lovely people in it as well. You've got the likes of Warwickshire captain Will Rhodes, of course, a partner of Dom Sibley, who's going to get an outing in the upcoming Test Series. You've got Yorkshire's terrific young wicketkeeper, Johnny Tattersall, and a colleague of mine occasionally on TMS, Tim Isle Mills. He's involved. And that's the thing. You buy one of these bats, you go out there, you score 100, and you will become part of that family. They'll be amplifying your message. You'll be part of a wider whole. And let's face it, that is what we're missing so much in lockdown, isn't it? It's camaraderie. It's togetherness. It's, it's just the joy of that cricket family, which we all know is there, and it's all been supporting each other while we're in lockdown. But we're about to get to taste it. We're about to get to feel it. and We're about to get that joy and that love back. I can't wait. Just to remind you though, it's Bear Cricket, B-E-A-R, not B-A-R-E. We do not we do not condone naked cricket. <laughs> Certainly not under these circumstances. It's Bear as in... BearCricket.co.uk Calling the shots in the price bar. Get your 10% off. Beautifully said there, Dan. We're nearly back to cricket. What better time to buy yourself a new bat? BearCricket.co.uk As Holly pitches the ball up slowly and... He's bold. 
Bradman, Bold, Hollies, North. Then body to Bradman. Spore well pitched. Bradman moves forward, drives. Cotton at cover tries to cut it off, but is beaten by the pace of the ball, and it races away for another four. No, is it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. That's it, it's all, it's high, it's miles in the air. Hughes is coming around, and so on, it's all, it's all one Cummins from the far end. He bowls to Stokes, who hammers it for four! And stands there with the bat raised. I can't believe we've seen that. And by them looking for that, let alone chasing it. It's going straight into the confectionery stall and out again. I'm Adam Collins. I'm Daniel Norcross, and this is Calling the Shots, presented by The Pinch Hitter, the new fortnightly digital magazine containing some of the best cricket writing in the world. It's a terrific initiative supporting freelance cricket writers at this particularly challenging time, so jump on the nightwatchman.net to read the latest edition of The Pinch Hitter. That link is also in the show notes for this episode. Adam and I, over six episodes, are tracing the century-long history of cricket commentary on radio and television. In previous episodes, we've tracked Cricket's journey on TV and radio. They are stories that have been told before, albeit perhaps not quite in the same way. This week, we're going to bring you a story that has never been told. And because it's a story that includes both of us, it's been a difficult tale to tell. It's the story of disruptors, the men and women who were the PhD students in America, car park attendants in Australia, sound engineers in England. Poets, civil servants, sub-editors, political advisors, comedians and project managers who wanted to live their life in cricket, and they ended up doing exactly that. To help us tell that yarn, we have with us four guests. Everybody who grew up contemporaneously to us is still super intimidated by Alan Border. That's Jeff Lemon, poet, author and broadcaster. But I've watched Alan Border trying to get his coat off a hook that was too high for him, and he couldn't couldn't jump up and get it and so he had to ask Michael Holding to come and get his jacket for him and it was adorable and so like, I can't be scared of Alan Border anymore because he's lovely. I'm a cricket historian now. Welcome Jared Kimber, car park attendant, writer, talker and filmmaker. It's a ridiculous world that we're suddenly in that I'm a cricket historian. I do remember once lying on the grass at the Oval right by the boundary edge. And this is Nigel Henderson, sub-editor and guerrilla commentator. And I must have been calling the game in my head because Graham Roop took this blinding catch and I just shouted out, and that's a brilliant take by Roop! 
And all these other people looked at me as if I was completely mad. Well, Crick Info, I mean, how, how on earth do you sum up Crick Info? And Andrew Miller, editor of Crick Info, the world's biggest cricket website and the place where our story begins in 1992. It started with Simon King, a, a homesick academic who, um, who went off to the University of Minnesota. He felt the absence of cricket was interrupting his rhythms. He just wanted to know... What's going on? He just shouted out into the ether on the internet, what's the cricket score? There was only one computer in Australia that was linked to the internet, and that was at Melbourne University. And it happened to be run by this guy called Robert Ells. He's a massive cricket fan. Robert Ells had a TV in front of him and an internet connection, and he would write out commentary. Ells was sending that text commentary to a mailing list of which King was a subscriber. You asked for the score, you got the score. It had the look and feel of a WhatsApp group. But King wanted real-time information that would constantly be updated. He was a cricket fan, after all. The genius of, of, of King was that he he basically came up with the original Cricket Info bot. It just snowballed extraordinarily from there. Basically, they invented Twitter on Cricket Info, and they didn't even know they'd invented it. Over the next four years, King set about building a comprehensive database of historical scorecards. If cricket was your thing, Cricket Info was the only place in town. It was the perfect storm for all these the Indian academics out in out in America who all, all piling into the into the the tech bubble. And one of the founders, his hero, was Mohammad Azruddin, who went and scored an amazing century at Calcutta. Cricket Info actually brought down the internet as it existed at the time because they overloaded the transatlantic pipeline. It was arguably the world's biggest website, and it had been at times during the World Cup, the world's biggest website. It was during that 1996 World Cup that King offered Crick Info to Cricket's global governing body. Simon King was very keen to, to work with cricket boards. He wanted to, to give it back to cricket. He wanted cricket to take ownership of his baby and grow the game. ICC was so put off by the fact that this was fans that they didn't want it. They didn't want to be involved with the fans. So the ICC gave up a $2 billion website because they didn't understand it. That guiding spirit of being there to grow the game was evident from an early stage when an England one-day team headed to Sharjah in 1997, a series, as it turned out, where a famous fan could get no satisfaction. They, no one was willing to pay for the rights for it, so it wasn't going to get broadcast. And the Rolling Stones at that stage were on a European tour. Mick Jagger comes along and contacts Crick Info and literally says to them, do you want to broadcast cricket? Because I want to watch cricket. It was hugely popular. I think Michael Holding was one of the commentators who drafted him for it. Thanks to Jagger's initiative, the Sharjah series had generated a good audience for Crick Info, but they had no commercial department to speak of. For all the readers, for all the page impressions, they were generating next to no income. For that, they needed investment. And two years later, they got it. First money that came in was a hundred grand to, to write a business plan, essentially. If we like it, we'll keep paying you money. A few months later, they're being paid $3 million. Um, no questions asked. By any measure, Crick Info was massive, described as one of the sexiest dot-coms in the world. That meant that even very unsexy heroes could break the internet. Channel 4 put out a press release stating that they had just had the biggest event in the history of the World Wide Web, which was the expulsion of Nasty Nick from Big Brother. They said it was 7.1 million page impressions, but Crick and Verobel trumped that, saying, nope, we, we can tell you that it was actually uh, nearer 8 million page impressions for Andrew Caddick running through West Indies at Headingley in the two-day test in 2000. By 2000, it was basically 97% of cricket traffic was on Crick Info. It was that big. They were valued at $120 million in 2001. That was understating what that website was worth. And in keeping with the spirit of the times, they were not afraid to splash the cash. In 2001, Crick Info 
paid a um, quarter of a million to sponsor the county championship that summer because no one else wanted to come in for it and uh, paid top dollar to fly everyone out first class to the Women's World Cup in New Zealand that winter as well. There was money being blown everywhere. It was extraordinary. But the income was nowhere near matching the profligate expenditure. They were blowing a million dollars a month. It wasn't sustainable in normal times. It certainly wasn't sustainable when the dot-com bubble burst toward the end of 2001. And it took a grand old dame of the cricket establishment to keep the site alive. Essentially, Crick Info was handed over to Wisdom for nothing. But the academic rigour that had built a ludicrously comprehensive archive of scorecards would ultimately be its saviour. The beauty of Crick Info was these guys who were meant to be writing PhDs but actually were just getting obsessed by cricket stats instead, they did it properly. They, they went and scoured the, scoured the world for scorecards. So even though the bubble burst, it had a, a value uh, intrinsic in it. Crick Info had established the principle of cricket online, but despite that 1997 foray into Sharjah, the technology was incapable of broadcasting matches with audio commentary. The bandwidth simply wasn't there. But as the technology improved, dreams of what was possible on the web were growing. And this is where it gets tricky. I'd been made redundant from my project manager job in the financial crash at the end of 2008. An ashes summer was looming and I'd missed the best one four years earlier compiling reports. My brother lives in the States. He could never listen to the BBC commentary because it was geo-blocked. I had a payout so I figured I had an excuse to stay at home and broadcast it to him and anyone else who fancied it. I knew a bunch of cricket obsessives from being one myself and I knew enough people in IT to make a website and an audio stream. And then a friend gave me a name. He called it Test Match Sofa, and it launched in time for the momentous 2009 Cardiff Test. Cyril comes round into bowl. He bowls round the wicket to Anderson, who again fences away. Oh, oh, go, 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 Broadcast from my front room in Tooting, the style was raw, unformed, but hugely playful. There was no crowd noise, of course, but there was a piano. You're, you're now going to hear a summary of the scorecards with Dan Norcross on scorecards, Cato Harris on dirges, and Jonathan Zub on Chopin's funeral march. When he onions, used to make us love. Onions, onions. Now he makes us so cruelly sawn off. By Assad Ralph. On his forearm did it go, and to Katich was it caught, to give his siddle his fifth. Five for twenty-one. England. All out. One hundred and two. The lampooning of players was very much a feature. It cost £437 million of taxpayers' money to develop Stuart Broad <laughs> in a Petri dish in a laboratory somewhere deep Dresden. beneath the bowels of Bracknell. <laughs> and it's time he paid England back. But that player would begin the repayments on that £437 million debt when he bowled England to victory at the Oval and secured the ashes. Broad gets five, clattered into off stump, Haddon's out. this a fucking that same English summer, an abrasive but lovable larrikin had swapped continents in search of a change of direction. I was a car park attendant. I'd worked in factories and call centres, but at that stage I was parking cars in, in the city by day. But he was a cricket obsessive and had started a blog, an extremely loose blog that was attracting plenty of attention. I would have had something like 
three hundred to 400,000 individual readers on Cricket with Balls that year. That's how big that blog got. Right place, right time. The cricketer got me accreditation and were terrified that I was going to offend everyone in the press box by the way I dressed because I wore a cap. That's how conservative cricket was. 2009 had been a golden first summer for the sofa. It had received good press from Barney Rodde and The Guardian and Lawrence Booth had been in touch. He was doing a feature about them in the next edition of the Wisden Almanac. But a home series is all well and good. Could we keep going into an English winter? To do that, we'd need to widen the net of callers, maybe find an influencer or two, and a foreign voice? There was just this random collection of human beings. It was like going to a dinner party where no one really knew each other and there was like one central person who invited all these people. Sure enough, Jared's sardonic tones were a perfect match for Test Match Sofa. He didn't hit his thigh, as if to say it hit his thigh, but he did gesture without gesturing that it couldn't have possibly hit his bat. And Broad can't believe it because it's the first time ever he's had a decision go against him in this great game. The South Africa tour had built momentum, but the style was still rough and ready. Were we capable of taking it to the next level while calling through the night? The big change for me was when we did the Bangladesh series and it was overnight. We had to learn what was entertaining. We had to learn about pauses and speed control and everything. That was when Test Match Sofa went from basically people chatting to really good broadcasting. Nigel Henderson would come in around that point as well. Nigel, or Hendo as he became known, knew Jared through the blogging community and was persuaded, despite his initial reservations, to join him on the sofa. He hit it off with the team instantly. I think it was an easy group to fit into because when you've got cricket in common, you don't really think about your differences. There was a great age range as well. Zub was a fantastic character. Uh, then Manny Cohen was a, a, a kind of kindred spirit, brilliantly knowledgeable. Jared was there, occasionally hilarious, but mainly rude. You then had four, what I would say, international quality ball-by-ball ball people. So yes, it was crazy. You'd still have the flow of professional broadcasting because by that point, we'd done our hours. We knew how to broadcast cricket. We almost had to be more entertaining and more interesting than a normal cricket broadcast. The sofa had gone from being raucous, drunken fun for a bunch of mates into an ambitious player, fated in the pages of wisdom within nine months. £10,000 of investment was secured from two of the better heeled contributors on the sofa who were loving it so much they didn't want it to fail. With it, we moved into a flat owned by Nigel Walker, the bear, and set up a full-time studio. The sofa was now a round-the-year, round-the-clock operation, and it was providing a service not just to the fans, but also to its contributors. I saw it as a work experience system of learning how to broadcast. I knew Ian O'Brien, um, for instance, through Twitter first, but him coming into Test Match Sofa and us going out and drinking and making podcasts together and all those sorts of things. So suddenly I'm thinking about things from an audio point of view and a production point of view. But they still had a problem. There was no ground noise. So they decided to replace crowds with musical jingles. Well, Ravibapara, he's a batter Like Ian Bell, but delicate Ravibapara, he's a batter like always are, but a little bit better. Ravi Papara, he's a batter and a useful medium pace bowler to have in a limited overs game. We had to create a atmosphere. So we had a mu musicians coming in. We had people making them at home. Test Match Sofa was nothing like any broadcast in cricket that had come before it either. It was one of the most creative spaces I've ever been to. And that creativity was driven not just by men, but in a cricket broadcasting first 
by a roster of women. Unbelievably, um, James Anderson just came in and bowled a ball that was wide of off stump that Michael <laughs> Clark went to drive at and it went straight into the hands of second slip. I'm lost in the ice cream aisle. Help me. You're never lost in the ice cream aisle. <laughs> so he's out, he's out, he's yes, out. Yes, fuck off, it- bye. We also had Izzy Duncan who wrote uh, Skirting the Boundary. We had Henna. She knew her cricket, her Pakistani cricket especially. We had Lizzie Ammon, of course. Katie Walker was a, a, another real character. And the audience was now acting as an extra pair of hands. One of our listeners, DJ Testament, knocked us up a homespun theme tune. There were some people a gathering, sitting on the sofa. They called us shots and swear hunting and chat to each other. I say, I don't like just my sofa. Oh no. I love it. Test my sofa were first moves when it came to Twitter. And Twitter was uh, a a game changer because it was, you know, it was this instant opportunity for for your listeners to give real-time feedback. We were getting noticed on social media and in turn, it was getting noticed by cricket journalists, many of whom, such as George DeBell, Nick Holt, Alan Tyers, Ali Martin and Chris Stocks, would appear as guests, creating a virtuous feedback loop. When the rumpus against uh, about spot fixing erupted in the news of the world, I really mem- remember thinking that we were now part of the cricket fraternity. But the tone of the program was avowedly alternative and was now being supplemented by professional entertainers. If you are in the up riffing on, on some completely random topic, who better to have there with you to riff on it than a comedian? You get people who are, who are just going to add value, add entertainment. And I found myself in the commentary position, the ball-by-ball position, with uh, Miles Jupp and Mark Steele, who are two of my favourite comedians. But what was attracting comics to a bunch of pissed-up amateurs and a mouse-infested flat in Nunhead? Here's Mark Steele explaining. You could just sit there as if you were drinking beers with your mates and just be irreverent and funny and be on air. And I remember one time just deciding to commentate on one over as John R. looked as if he was asking for drugs <laughs> which is probably about as irreverent as you could possibly be about cricket who wouldn't want to do that I wonder if the test match special team was ever like that and our lot our lot ever went <laughs> producer don't come in here with that my fucking dope how do you expect me to go 25 minutes at the middle session of the third day without a spliff on never been so disgusted anyway he comes in and bowls and that just pushed out on the offside and there's no run Jared was about to head home to cover the 2010-11 Ashes he may have left the country but reminders of the sofa were everywhere my friends were, were starting to listen to the sofa and, and Gideon Hay going on offsiders in a Cricket with Balls t-shirt one week and a Test Match Sofa t-shirt a couple of weeks later. To be in the press box and to see another conservative old journalist listening to Test Match Sofa, it was such a weird moment of uh, cricket culture. Anderson has taken four for 30. And Jared, just in case you're listening, (laughs) I believe you may have queried whether Anderson was up to getting wickets in Australia. Read the fucking scorecard. (laughs) That through the night ashes winter saw listing figures rocket to 30,000. And as England pulled off a rare victory abroad, well, we were revelling in it. England have won the Ashes. Well, they've retained the Ashes. They're 2 1 off. This makes me feel young again. Wow. They've won by an innings at 157 runs. They've shat on Australia from a gigantic <laughs> height. One of my favourite musicians is a guy called Tex Perkins. And he talks about this beautiful time in Australian music when the 5% of fucked up weird shit rose to the top. 
And I would talk about this with Dan all the time. I said, if we hold our ground and we keep creating, we are going to be that 5% of fucked up weird shit because no one else is ever going to be able to do this. Those first couple of years on the sofa, I don't think I'd laughed as much in years, to be honest. It was, it was, it was just tremendous. He didn't want to be away from it. England fans, enthusiastic amateurs, satirists, classicists, it took all types to build it. From humble beginnings, the sofa was a juggernaut inside 18 months. Test Match Sofa had been set up as an alternative to the BBC's flagship coverage on Test Match Special. But in Australia, the circumstances were different in 2013, when the ABC elected not to tour India to commentate the marquee Border Gavaskar Test Series. The public outcry was considerable, and it didn't take long for the debate to reach the halls of the National Parliament. This was John Faulkner's contribution, speaking in the Senate. I find it extraordinary that the ABC has published on their website a promotion of an internet-based, audio-only, siphoned broadcast from England. Test Match Sofa is a group of dedicated uh, cricket fans who watch the coverage of Test Cricket from their couch and provide commentary over the net. Now, uh, some might even consider this piracy, but it is certainly not a substitute for ABC coverage. While, as the good senator noted, we were covering every moment of this series on the sofa, there was no Australian broadcast. That was an unacceptable and unsustainable situation for Jeff Lemon. I was initially shocked, but I was also angry. I, I felt a real connection to that ABC commentary team, and I just remember having that thought that this can't be allowed to stand. Somebody has to at least provide radio commentary because otherwise it's on pay TV and that's it. It was something that had been on his mind in the past, but now there were no excuses. Andy Lane and I had been kicking this idea around for a while, saying it would be fun just to do a, a sort of funny people on the couch at home watching cricket sort of commentary as an alternative to existing commentary and then when the ABC pulled out I remember calling Andy and saying well we have to do it we've got to find a way to do it somehow Andy had been in bands and so he had some kit but we had a, a shitty two-channel mixer and a couple of stage microphones nothing fancy whatsoever but crucially they had a house and a couch this was the box of dreams as it quickly became known and it was up and running in time for the third test match from Mahali it actually used to be a priest's house and it must have been one of those priests of a denomination with a huge family because it was just room after room after room. Next door was a Freemason's temple and obviously whoever their portfolio manager was had died because they couldn't get an email back to, to give us a new lease, but that also meant they couldn't put the rent up. Given the slapdash way it was being put together, they couldn't be picky about how they got to air. The attitude was clear, whatever it took, so long as they found a way to call the action. It was being hosted by The Raw a website Lemon was then writing for. We were running it through Google Hangouts, and then that could stream live on YouTube. You got a three-hour session on YouTube, and then it would crash, and then you'd have to set up a completely new link. Uh, sorry about the small technical difficulties. We've just been suffering. We're uh, coming back to you live with Sension 10 Dukkha coming into ball. We were having a absolute ball we were doing this thing that we'd always loved and i thought it was definitely the best job in the world but it never crossed my mind that i would do it we are gonna have an over from the little master that is quite a treat he's not a frequent bowler these days chris martin he's uh actually 106 years old he's been playing cricket since he actually played with wg grace originally before india were actually a test nation i had been mimicking cricket commentary in my head 
for years and years and years, and I hadn't really thought about it. It had been unconscious, but any time that the TV had been on and I didn't have a radio, I'd be doing the radio commentary in my head. And so when the time came to do it out loud, I thought, hang on, I've been practicing this for 20 years. I know how to do this. Jeff put the team together on the run from colleagues, mates from the cricket field and entertaining pals from his other life as a poet. They had got on the air and would do so again for the final test the following week. The idea was, can you speak for more than five minutes and still be interesting? If so, you're on the call. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Raw Radio, calling for you the fourth test coming out of India. We have uh, the big news, Captain Michael Clark is out, and Shane Watson will be Australia's 44th test captain. We did not get a change of Prime Minister yesterday. But we have had a change of test captaincy here today, which some would rate as being potentially more important. But Lemon had snared one big recruit, a man who had been part of those ABC calls he adored from previous Australian test tours to India. Incidentally, a commentator who had also been contributing to our coverage on the sofa earlier in the series. Glenn Mitchell was writing for the Raw website at the time. So I gave him a ring. I was quite nervous because, you know, I'd been listening to Glenn for years. We spoke for over an hour on the phone and he walked me through everything. You know, this is how you set up a roster. This is how you do your rotations. This is how you manage a double change. This is where your descriptive focus needs to be. And right at the end of the call, as we were signing off, he just said very nonchalantly, oh, if you need someone to fill in for a spot here or there, give me a call. And I was like, what, hang on, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, and I'd be happy to. So I was like, I hang up the phone. I was like, fucking Glenn Mitchell wants to do commentary with us, you know. As Maxwell's around the wicket in the reverse, sweep his bowled. Oh, VJ has dragged that on. Uh, Maxwell bowling around the wicket, pushed it right across the right-hander, and all he did on the reverse sweep was catch up with the ball and drag it back quite forcefully onto his stumps. He was such a pro that any time someone froze up, he would just pick up the commentary again and cover it over for them and then give them the next invitation. He's out for 11, and it just buoys Australia's confidence at 1 for 19, uh, still needing another 136 India. But that, Peter Flynn, is a bizarre piece of batting from, as I said, one of the men who has been at the forefront with the Willow for India throughout the series. By the end of that series, because it wasn't a huge cast, all of us felt like we'd had a bit of one-on-one improvement time with a real professional. As a consequence of Mitchell's influence and polish, the style in Jeff's living room wasn't quite as absurdist as what was going on in London. The balance was to say, always put the cricket first, but don't let that stop you from having fun around it. But fundamentally, they were doing it for the love of Test cricket, just like their compadres 10,000 miles away. There has to be a bit of the love of the game there. I think you know when you're listening to commentators who are not in love with the game that they're watching at that moment. And importantly, they came away from the experience with a firm resolution. We resolved then at that point that any series going forward where there wasn't radio commentary, we would do it. Back in England, despite the audiences we were attracting, the sofa was barely washing its face. Covering 160 days of cricket every year was a costly pursuit. We needed outside investment. At the end of 2011, Andrew Miller left CrickInfo and had been appointed editor of The Cricketer magazine. Andrew Miller was a big fan of the show. He'd uh, been given the remit to bolster the magazine's internet presence. And, and he saw Test Match Sofa as a key plank in that. As a fan and contributor to The Sofa, Miller knew what we were all about. My instinct was that Test Match Sofa had found that new audience. Well, it was 30,000 30, listeners maybe at that stage who clearly had had decided that for better or worse, 
this was a service that offered them something that they weren't getting from traditional broadcasting. The deal was struck. Test Match Sofa was purchased by the cricketer in January 2012. They spent studios, investment and the capacity finally to pay the team, albeit very modestly. But immediately there was a big shift in attitudes towards us. No longer were we seen as jovial renegades offering a chaotic, anarchic alternative. We were now in the mainstream. We were dubbed pirates. We were called parasites for not buying rights, having to this point operated for over two years without a legal challenge. The authorities were on the warpath. You couldn't stop it any more than you could stop me, in my role at Crick Info, doing ball-by-ball commentary from my study. Once it's out in the public domain, it's up to the people who are consuming it to do what they want with it. So the legal challenges came piling in. The rain-joked summer of 2012, the sofa's first with the cricketer, wasn't all I'd hoped it would be. We were moving from studio to studio, calling weather-ruined cricket, all of it overshadowed by the London Olympics. And there was an increasingly public spat with the authorities developing around us. By now, Test Match Schaefer was the ECB's public enemy number one, accused of damaging cricket by compromising the value of broadcasting rights. And the cricketer's board wasn't happy. While Miller may have anticipated the rumpus, it wasn't what the directors had bargained for. But that winter, the rights issue was brought into sharp relief when a standoff between the Indian authorities and the BBC threatened to derail Test Match Special's trip to India. Suddenly it looked like Jonathan Agnew and co were going to have to go into a bunker and shoot the breeze off, off the tube. It wasn't, just a, it wasn't just about us anymore. It was about the boards, the ECB, uh, Australia and, and the BCCI were, were flexing their muscles. We were ready and willing to pick up the slack. We'd put together a tie-in with the Daily Mail to host our audio player. A last-minute compromise between the BBC and the Indians got Test Match Special on air, but the sofa still started the series by lining up Lawrence Booth, the mail correspondent at the ground, to talk to us at close of play. Lawrence Booth was, was threatened with, with having his accreditation removed for being associated with Test Match Sofa. I thought, well, OK, that's a setback, but it doesn't actually change the raison d'etre for the sofa because our guys were never going to be in the ground. This was going to be the new battleground on which the authorities would lay siege to the sofa, attack their legitimacy and cut off their access to the media. They lost the argument the moment they, they, went, they went in feet first against, against the sofa. I mean, where on earth does that, does that Rethian spirit mean clamping down on people who are not really making a buck out of it but, uh, but are, are, are trying to expand the footprint of the game? And while Team Sofa may have won that argument, it was no longer clear they'd prevail in the war. Because the more notoriety the Sofa got, the more the listenership grew, but also the more uh, the cricketers' board got edgy. Despite having caused our new owners no end of trouble and hostile publicity, in February 2013, a perfect opportunity to expand emerged as the broadcast rights issues, which spawned the birth of raw radio in Australia, opened the door for us. Big time. Suddenly... Australia were going to get no coverage of probably the biggest series of, of, of the year for them. And I suddenly had a light bulb moment. So I had to come into the breach. That was the first instance of, of a major series being blacked out in a major territory and a recognition that we, we're no longer the enemy here. We're the people who are actually going to keep, keep the torch burning for the game. That India series clashed with our coverage of New Zealand v England, but the time zones just about made it possible by calling for 14 hours straight through the night. And even if Senator Faulkner wasn't happy with it, as the quasi-replacement service for the ABC, he was still listening in. Indeed, he had no option for those first two tests before Jeff assembled his team. In the middle of this madness, the SOFA team even conducted a 52-hour commentary marathon for Red Nose Day, with a revolving door of guests including impressionist Rory Bremner and current health secretary Matt Hancock. Listening figures soared across the series, reaching a remarkable 250,000. 
Objectively, we were in a great place to tackle the upcoming ashes in England, having also moved into TV studios next to the BT Tower on a Freeview channel run by Kelvin McKenzie, Sports Tonight Live. Danny Garlic, brilliant producer, was, was brought in. People could actually look at us and see us and see what we look like and put faces to the names. But away from the comfy confines of the sofa studio, the ECB were about to play their trump card. Jeff Lemon was about two, three seats down from me. And then a bevy of ECB suits come in. When I got a tap on the shoulder from Colin Gibson, the comms man, saying, uh, on your bike, uh, your accreditation's revoked because the cricketer's Twitter handle had retweeted a tweet from Test Match Sofa talking about the cricket. And that was sufficient for it to be deemed that Test Match Sofa had started to broadcast live from the ground. And we were thinking like, fucking hell, these guys are serious, you know, <laughs> day one and we've watched someone get their accreditation stripped. And um, yeah, never seen again in the rest of the series. It was more or less Gibson just saying, checkmate, you lose on your bike. It's like, fine, okay, we'll deal with this. I'll go, I'll regroup, I'll talk to my board, we'll work out our next move. On the pitch, England was winning in unusually comfortable style, wrapping up the retention of the Ashes with two games to play. Oh, the covers! The covers! I think the covers are being readied! Oh, yes! Yes, it's raining! I will just bring you some incredible news that is developing from Old Trafford. Uh, England are out on the balcony. The game has been called off, the match has been drawn, and England retain the Ashes. And our music maestro, James Sherwood, was playing his shots as a sofa stayed true to its parochial roots. Old Trafford is the place for a phony run chase. Each sobbing Aussie puts a smile on my face. Their hopes are down the drain. Kevin Rudd is looking pained. We're dancing cause the ashes are retained. On the last day of that 2013 series, the sofa attracted its best ever lineup of expert summarisers, international players one and all, including two former Test Match special regulars. It was uh, Graham Fowler, there was Adam Holyoke, Greg Matthews, Angus Fraser, all on and off the, the programme throughout the day. The programme was never slicker, but the cricketer had been irrevocably spooked by the enduring threats from ECB Towers. Nevertheless, with dwindling financial support from the magazine, we still managed to broadcast the 5-0 Ashes whitewash. It turned out to be Test Match Sofa's last hurrah. Fundamentally, there was a, a lack of faith in what it had become. It, it had grown to a, to a degree that it had notoriety and it had presence, but it wasn't the thing that the cricketer board wanted. Uh, they essentially wanted a Test Match special version. It had been a rapid descent after a mighty run, the fall incongruously occurring so soon after the peak. However, did that need to be the end? Did it need to be this way? The bridgehead was there, in all honesty. I think I think it could have worked. I don't waver for a second from the from the from the fundamental belief that it was that it had its place. It was anarchy, but it was anarchy with a with a purpose. Time for a quick breather on calling the shots. When we return, the disruptors get even busier. Daniel, as we take a break in calling the shots, a few words about our pals at the Lord's Taverners, who you have plenty to do with. They're the UK's leading youth cricket disability sports charity. They do amazing work breaking down barriers and empowering young, disadvantaged, disabled people fulfil their potential and build life skills. And there perhaps is no more important time than to talk about the, the work of charities in a period where it has been tough. It really has been tough. And the Lord's Taverners have been part of the cricket furniture and the cricket family for 
70 years now. And now, more than at any other time, perhaps, they are required because there are so many people who are missing out on the activities that the Lord's Taverners have been funding and organising simply because we've got a social distance. You've got the, the Wickets programme. It's a community cricket programme aimed at those who live in high areas of poverty. You have the Super Ones. It's a, it's a marvellous game, this. Gives young people living with disabilities a chance to play cricket regularly. It gives them confidence. It gives them independence. Um, table cricket. If you've ever seen table cricket, it's uh, one of the most inspirational things you'll ever see. It's basically a, a kind of adapted form of the game. You play it on a table, tennis table. It's for people with severe learning and physical disabilities. And the Lord's Taverners, you know, I, I do do a lot with them. I do quizzes with them. I commentate games. I, I missed Ben Stokes' miracle at Headingley, by the way, because I was at Bray commentating a game for the Lord's Taverners. And honestly, I had as much fun doing that. I, I, you probably find it hard to believe, but I genuinely did have as much fun doing that as as I would have done watching actual Ben Stokes whacking his 138. It's it's another part of of community, which is so important. It's an important part of cricket. Uh, there's a lot of lovely people who are involved in it. Greg James has been involved in the in the tablets. David Gower is the new president, taken over from Trevor McDonald, and they now, at more than any other time, if you think a, a cricket charity spends a lot of its resources in summer on events and trying to get people together and try to raise money so that they can do these wonderful, wonderful programs. Well, this summer, as we all know, has been a wipeout so far. So all of those events, they haven't been able to happen. But the programs still need to be organised. They still need to be funded. And so really, I, I urge people to take a look into the taverners to try and dip into their pockets if they can if you're working and, and you've not been hit as badly by this crisis uh, and help them out because they're a very worthy bunch uh, i love them to bits and they do great great work yeah they've been around since 1950 they help 12,000 young people every single year with their award-winning cricket programs which dan you've just ran through then and as i said at the start they they provide a lifeline for some of the most at-risk communities in the uk tackling issues such as knife crime unemployment radicalization isolation which of course, is something we know a lot about at the moment. If you do have some disposable income, or indeed you want to get involved with the Taverners when this is all over, www.lordstaverners.org. We'll have that in the show notes and all the information around the Lord's Taverners. They are good people doing good things in our cricketing community. Welcome back to Calling the Shots. As pledged 18 months earlier, Lemon's living room was full once again in November 2014 the next time that Australia's men were overlooked by the national broadcaster for an away test tour. Raw Radio was back and revamped as White Line Wireless. The technical improvements were considerable, implemented by a dedicated producer with an atmosphere track at his disposal. Just as importantly, the program was available from the same link every day. Michael Clark's team were hammered in both tests by Pakistan in the UAE desert, but that didn't matter to those calling the shots, who were taking great pleasure in the performance of the home side. Everybody in there was nominally an Australian supporter, but all of us loved that Pakistan team. We very quickly went from being disappointed that Australia were getting pasted to saying, well, let's see how much Pakistan can beat us by. Let's let's see how many runs Yunus can make in the series. And the culmination of that was Miss Bale Huck making 
the fastest 100 in test history. Everybody in the room jumped to their feet and screamed in celebration. Here's a room full of Australians all going bananas for the Pakistan captain making a ton that's grinding us into the dirt. And I thought, we're not here for a team. We're here for cricket and we bloody love it. This growing cast now included me. I was also angry about the ABC's decision not to tour India in 2013, drafting my own sofa-inspired alternative. I contacted Jeff after what he was able to achieve the first time around. I wanted in. Adam rolled in in his grubby cricket whites at probably 9pm on a Sunday or something and just sort of rolled in, clapped his hands together. It was like, right, let's go, you know, and so I popped him on air and, and he just went for it and, and I thought, all right, we, 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 it's pretty evident this guy can do it within about two minutes of, of jumping on. And I never left, which is shown by my ragged voice after a fortnight on the tools. They only need another 500 runs on top of that, despite losing their captain, their stoic opener, and their number three, who played a reverse sweep after seven balls. <laughs> Across two series, the work of Lemon and his burgeoning collective, now attracting similar creative types that had fueled the sofa's explosion a few years earlier, was paying off. The commentators were gelling, the audience growing. Another feature they shared with the sofa was the inclusion of female voices. We actually have women in the commentary box, you know. Cat Jones was on with Katie Bailey and we're opening it up, we're democratising it. It wasn't long before White Line Wireless was named by a pop culture zine as one of Australia's foremost disruptors. There were people who wanted to listen to us because they liked the way we described the cricket better than they liked listening to conventional commentary and so at that point we decided to keep going. But we didn't know when the next vacant window might be, so a decision was taken. White Line Wireless would adopt the sofa's approach and start appearing alongside mainstream broadcasts. You're listening to White Line Wireless, called the first Ashes test from Cardiff. Ball by ball by bloody ball. All told, across the winter of 2015, White Line Wireless broadcast seven tests from the West Indies in England through the middle of the night, including when Michael Clark's side was skittled for 60. That score again, 38 runs, seven wickets, if you were confused. Uh, several ducks, quite a... It's like a foie gras factory out there. It's <laughs> the centre wicket. We've seen the unreasonable treatment of ducks for the satisfaction of over-wealthy Englishmen. Since 2013, Jeff's day job was working as a cricket writer, so he couldn't be on the call for every tour, but White Line Wireless would still thrive in his absence. It didn't need me anymore, and that was this wonderful thing where a, a bunch of people had got together, in Cat uh, Jones and Ben Rennick and Jonathan Woods and Tom Cowie, and, and they had all decided that they loved doing this as well and they wanted to make it work. This was taken to another level during the World T20 of 2016. With Jeff in India covering the tournament, 37 people were involved in the White Line team, as we called every televised game from the men and women's competition. Helpfully, we still had that living room. If there was ever a place where 30 people could come and go over the course of a night at three in the morning to commentate an informal radio station on a tournament in India in the middle of the night when the guy who lived there wasn't even home. And it was a model that continued to work, even when the old share house was finally demolished in 2017. Whatever the circumstances, White Line continued to be there, ball by ball by bloody ball. But as Jeff gained more experience behind the mic, his belief was sharpened that there was something amiss with the direction of the Nine Network's TV broadcasts. I think we were conscious at the time of how much frustration there was with television commentary in Australia, with 
Channel 9's commentary becoming a sort of buffhead fest. There'd been a discontent building for a long time, at least a few years, you know, certainly since Richie Benno had stepped back. This sentiment generated national headlines during the Boxing Day Test match of 2014 when pizza toppings rather than pull shots became the primary point of discussion. It was far from an isolated incident. As a result, Jeff was told to take a look. The Guardian sports editor asked me to write a piece about Michael Clark as a commentator and, and I started writing this which meant I listened to Nine quite closely for a few weeks. And I think from having spent a lot of time with people at White Line Wireless, when I thought, here's this contrast between what these amateurs are doing for nothing and what these professionals are doing, not bothering to look up the slightest thing, not knowing anything about the visiting team. Before long, a simple column was turning into a much deeper piece of analysis. On the advice and encouragement of Jared Kimber, it only got longer and a lot more involved. And I sent it to Jared. He didn't send back any notes on the piece itself, but he wrote back saying, this is great, but there are other areas to this story as well. Why don't you do all of it? He said, why don't you write the definitive piece on this so it never has to be written about again? He said, I feel like you're still leaving things out because you don't want it to go too long. And so I ended up almost doubling the length of the piece. 4,000 words later, Jeff Hitsend, published the night before the 2015 Men's World Cup. Within minutes, his phone was exploding with interest. The article reached millions of readers. It was the most read piece on The Guardian for days in a row. There'd been this dumbing down of sports commentary all over the world, which hadn't been challenged, but that there were a huge number of people who wanted it to be different. Despite being celebrated by many for synthesising the dissatisfaction, The backlash was inevitable from those inside the tent. People would come up and pat me on the back and say, you know, good piece. But a lot of the time there was this air of of, um, anticipation from them as to what was going to happen to me. Like you you weren't supposed to take on powerful organisations. However, this apprehension was balanced by members of the Nine team who engaged with Jeff constructively. There were some people involved who came and spoke to me about it personally and conceded that at least parts of it were accurate and that there were problems to be dealt with. Take, for instance, Mark Nicholas, who reflected on the criticism when we interviewed him for episode four of Calling the Shots. I think Richie remained, if you like, as as our conscience. And I think it was when Richie went uh, that we lost a bit of direction, became too blokey and got some stick for it fairly, I thought. In any event, it was difficult to deny the lasting impact of what's still known as the Jeff Lemon 9 piece. Change eventually followed because, quite simply, it hit a nerve. Why is it important? Why are people upset about it? Why does it matter? By the end of it, I felt like I'd I'd actually uncovered something quite profound in its own way. Lemon's compatriot, Kimber, had also been training his gaze on where the game could be improved. Four years earlier, he'd headed out to Australia for that 2010-11 Ashes series, making short, iconoclastic videos with Sam Collins, provocatively called Two Pricks at the Ashes. His distinctive style caught the eye, and within months, he'd been snapped up by Crick Info, where Miller was editor. He became one of Crick Info's most popular writers because he came off his long run and kept steaming in. He wrote like a writer. He wrote like an enthusiast 
and he wrote with a, a bit of literary flourish, but he was also not afraid to be crass, not afraid to be just someone who loved the game. But initially, not everyone in the press box was convinced by Kimber. Journalists looked down on what they called fans with laptops when I first started. There was, that was the big phrase. He's not a journalist, he's a fan with a laptop. They were more having a look at how we were providing it. The medium is not the message. The message is the message. Kimber was an unabashed fan, but what he and Sam did with their laptops was to turn their critical eyes on cricket authorities, particularly the so-called Big Three, Cricket Australia, the BCCI and the ECB. For the duo, these authorities were eroding the game's values and destroying the format they loved. Over the course of four patient years, they gathered their evidence and finally released their findings in the award-winning documentary film Death of a Gentleman. And that gentleman, they contended, was test cricket. We were seen as outsiders. And yet there's a reason that test map sofa has the word test in it. But at the same time, we were actually doing the heavy lifting on preserving the more conservative part of the game. I basically went from making fun of cricketers on a website to making a film about corruption within the heart of the game itself. Before we made that film, other than Gideon Haig, I don't think anyone in the world thought about or looked at cricket politics and suddenly everyone had to cover it. Have a look at cricket writing today. There's a lot of writing about men in suits these days. This productive period for Kimber coincided with his assimilation into mainstream commentary boxes. It earned him the respect to go on and sit side by side with greats of the game on radio. He vividly recalls doing so at his home ground, the MCG. I'm in the ground that I grew up in and I'm now about to walk on air and broadcast besides Jim Maxwell. And I was just like, I can't believe I'm here considering that my website's logo did have a pair of testicles um, in the shape of cricket balls on it. And next thing you know, Raul Dravid's commentating on air and he's quoting you and you're like, how has this happened? The sofa had closed down at almost exactly the same time as Jared was getting his break with big broadcasters. I was stuck and I wasn't exactly the BBC's best friend, but I took a punt. I got in contact with CMS producer Adam Mountford and generously, frankly, under the circumstances, He offered me a gig on a county game at my home ground, the Oval. Meanwhile, I'd left my day job after the immersive fun of the UAE series on White Line Wireless and went full tilt cricket freelance. This had me on a plane to the West Indies where I talked my way onto the local radio broadcast. From there, I was off to England and the Ashes with Jeff joining me. Finally, all our paths collided. By 2015, for the Ashes, Adam, Dan Norcross and myself are all together doing a a tour match at Northamptonshire. It's off-Broadway, but it's on the BBC. You know, we're, we're still broadly under the BBC TMS banner. Here's me and Adam, and we're, we're on proper radio now. We're, we're doing this legitimately. Like, this is ridiculous. Within four weeks of that North Hans game, Adam and I would make our senior men's TMS debuts, calling ODIs at Old Trafford. And then Dan Norcross is going to come in. I'm sure many people have heard Dan commentating on county cricket. And he's making his international debut today with us anyway. Dan Norcross coming in. 15 overs have gone. England have lost their second wicket. I was about to come in and say, aren't they magnificently placed to pile on a score in excess of 300? They may well yet be. It's Cummins. To him pulling hard this time through mid-wicket. That'll get to the boundary, beating the sweeper, Joe Burns. And the score moving on to 54 for three. I went on a nomadic journey over the next two years, commentating around the world before returning to England, back on Test Match Special for the 2017 Champions Trophy. Then Jeff hit the BBC airwaves, joining Adam and me on the Women's World Cup later that summer, as Harman Preet Kaur took the Aussies to the sword in spectacular fashion. Free hit. It's oh. flat, and it is smashed down the ground by Harman Preet for six. Well, don't give me any freebies, she says, because I will punish you just like that. I think it probably helped 
learning the ropes on an informal sort of station. I thought if, if I do the thing that I do, it will be distinctive, and if people like it, then it'll work. As for Daniel, he'd been given his first test match the previous summer and would head out to Australia to cover four of the five Ashes tests as England were demolished in 2017-18. He was established in the TMS cast and was lucky enough to be on air as England's leading run scorer signed off in style. Oh, there's overthrows! Oh my word, that's going to run away to the boundary! It is! Crook's done it, he's reached his 100 in his final test match. What an astounding achievement. England's leading run scorer of all time. He takes his helmet off, the crowd go berserk. What a way to get to it. He got to 100 on the oval like that years ago against Pakistan. He's done it again now in his last match. He's embraced warmly by Joe Root. What a magnificent moment. And while Daniel was making headway on the BBC, his old chums from the sofa days hadn't been sitting still either. A new venture was in the offing. And at first, nobody really wanted to carry on without Dan because he was such a focal and vocal part of the programmes. But slowly, Nigel Walker and I began to realise that no show is about one man. We felt the story of alternative commentary had only been half told. They went off and formed Gorilla Cricket, which carried on the irreverent spirit and, and somehow brilliantly, in my opinion, um, have, have, have managed to keep churning it out. And sure enough, Gorilla Cricket, as they were now to be known, had a great new theme in keeping with the sofa legacy of music and cricket with a revolutionary zeal, leaning into the fact that their rocky association with the cricketer was no more. Would not give up the ghost when they left us all for dead. They decapitated us, but we just grew another head. It was a message defiance about how the cricketer relationship had turned sour. James Sherwood, he came up with this, this notion of rhyming couplets combining high-profile revolutionaries with well-known and some uh, lesser-known cricketers. A savvy move into non-England internationals followed, becoming champions of the associate ranks. It was an investment that would pay off when Ireland were granted full member status of the ICC and scheduled for a debut test against Pakistan in Dublin in May 2018. We got to know Dave Brooke. He he was the man who took uh, cricket to Channel 4 in 1999 and uh, he'd become a Gorilla fan while working in China. He had some great contacts and uh, one of those was uh, Warren Dutram, the Cricket Ireland chief executive. Leveraging off the relationships built with Cricket Ireland, they were handed the rights to take on the project of broadcasting this momentous week in cricket history. The guerrilla army was on the road. We went over there, we took two cars, the Bears car was full of um, our equipment. I took four of us over in my car, which unfortunately had a horrendous accident on the third day. Now the spotlight was on, with the cricket world keen to see how an alternative broadcaster would fare as an official rights holder for the first time. We have an Ireland fan amongst our number in Roger McCann getting Rog, as a native son, to introduce things. They got a briefish summary of the development of Irish cricket. It had the passion of someone who'd lived and breathed it. Ireland had proved to be the outstanding associate nation, worthy to become the 11th test-playing team. And we're not just here to make up the numbers. These fellas are ready. We decided we could be professional without losing our edge. We wanted to present Irish cricket in a positive light. As much as anything, we wanted to respect those fans, and and that was a huge moment for them. 
such a huge moment for me to be at a country's first test. It was such an emotional thing. And then on the other side of, of the ground is this way too tiny box. And in there is my mate, Nigel Henderson, who I dragged down to Test Match Sofa. You know, Nigel Walk is there. Other Test Match Sofa people are there. And they're capturing history. The first ball, everything happened. That is the, the field for the first ball in Irish Test Cricket history. Murta Men. stretches indeed at uh, the end of his run. It's about to bowl. Everyone is absolutely silent. Here he comes in past the umpire. Bowls a rather loopy full ball. They're going to go run, though. And uh, they have to hurry. And an enormous collision. Imamul Hack running to the danger end. And he's gone down without receiving a ball. He's absolutely poleaxed. What drama at the beginning of this first test in uh, Ireland. It wasn't a great first day for the hosts, but it turned into a belter of a low-scoring test with the Irish fighting back gallantly. Here comes Amir again. And he's got it! He's yeah! got it! He's got it! Yeah! He's going to get one. He's going to get two. He might come back for a third. No, he's going to settle chill. for two. He's going to chill. He's going to take off his helmet. He's going to raise his arms. He lifts his bat. He can't believe it. 101 for Kevin O'Brien. A clatter of wickets raised the possibility of something truly stunning. We thought, well, really? Can, can Ireland do this? Dare we believe... And Murta's up to the crease again. Bowled him off, stopped the bears are off. The high fives, the high turns are coming through. It's 14 for three. The main man Shafiq is the latest to go. And Murta's on top of the Pakistan here. In the end, Ireland couldn't pull off that shock win. But it didn't matter. Test cricket was healthier for their debut. And for the Gorillas too. I remember thinking that this is what the sofa could have become. In, in other circumstances. And it proved that it had been worth carrying on. That, to me, made the point that I'd been wanting to make for 10 years. A couple of months before Ireland's first outing, Jeff and I were working our way around South Africa while calling for competing stations throughout the fateful Sandpaper series. Australia's next test assignment in October 2018, without the band trio, was slated for the UAE against Pakistan. The corresponding series from 2014, where Adam had entered the White Line Wireless Box of Dreams with Jeff. But this time, there was a difference. Following on from what the guerrillas had done in Ireland and accepting that there would be no Australian broadcast, I negotiated an agreement with the Pakistan Cricket Board for the rights. Jeff was to be my co-caller, of course, and Wisdom were in the cart to host the broadcast online. But I only had a fortnight to put the show to air. It was full on and high risk, both in terms of our reputations and the house deposit worth of cash I had to recoup from commercial partners, which at this stage, frankly, didn't exist. I was away for a few days, got back, he says... I've bought the rights, and I was like, "Oh Jesus Christ!" Like, you know, we, now we have to do it. We knew we could commentate it, but could we actually physically set it up? Could we get it to people? Would it technically work? But thanks to the gorillas, Nigel Walker, who helped thread the technical pieces together, we made it to the starting line in Dubai with the PCB and Cricket Australia taking the call. By now, former Test players Mike Hussey, Brendan Julian and Bazid Khan had also joined the team, with White Line Wireless's Andrew Donison making the trip from Melbourne to produce the coverage. It was on. It was just this really interesting, full-circle, sort of Olympic quadrennial parallel, but we're still doing it because no-one else went. No-one else wanted to do it. And we were in exactly the same position of saying, this is a Test match series that Australia's playing. It should be important enough to listen to it should be important enough to be accessible and as that test reached its final day they were on the cusp of the dream finish yeah it was Khawaja's epic and just one of the great 
ever test batting performances. Usman Khawaja scores his 100th run and after all his travails in Asia, his troubles away from home and his struggles against spin, he has made a century in conditions comprising all three of those former problems. He has made a century for Australia in Dubai against Pakistan in the toughest of circumstances under the heaviest of pressure. With Australia trying to bat for a draw against a spin attack on a difficult wicket. I think we were aware of that on the day as tension started to build. We thought, hang on, we've got, we've actually got a classic here. They did. And Australia did save it, resisting for 140 overs in a gripping final over finish that would be heard live and, crucially, free around the world. Yes, Ishah must take a wicket with this ball for Pakistan to have a hope. If he doesn't, Australia have pulled off the great escape. Can Yasir Shah do it? He needs two wickets in two balls to win the test match for Pakistan. He delivers to the captain Payne, who defends down the strip. This isn't the great escape, Jeff Lemon. This is one of the greatest escapes in the history of test cricket. Australia somehow have done it. It would have been so disappointing if this hadn't been available. We felt really grateful to get a great game to call, but we also felt grateful that we were able to provide that moment. By this point, the enterprise had generated plenty of attention. Much of it focused on Jeff and my unorthodox broadcasting origins. But there was no way we could forget the alternative tradition from which we'd emerged. Reflecting on where this all began, which of course was in the box of dreams. Wildlife and Wireless have been a huge part of why we were able to get this off the ground to begin with. And, and it's only right that we thank them for their enduring support. And, and we're so thrilled that they're also broadcasting the series. So our love and thanks to the, the White Line family and the Box of Dreams. Also to Gorilla Cricket, the, the artist formerly known as Test Match Chauffeur. These days, Gorilla Cricket. It says something about the fraternity and, and friendship that we share between these various alternate cricket commentaries. I think that's what the love of commentary has always been, is that the, the feeling of gratitude at being able to be a conduit between something remarkable and someone else's happiness. Six months later, a World Cup summer in England was looming large and all the disruptors were in town. By now, Sofa veteran Andy Zaltzman was Test Match Special's main scorer for one day and he was joined plenty of times by Daniel and Jeff as they crisscrossed to the country for the BBC. Adam was also present, calling for the world feed, but when that ran into financial strife, once more there was the very real prospect of people missing out on the action. On the basis of what he was able to do in the UAE the previous year, he was called upon by Melbourne station SEN to deliver them a broadcast for the business end of the tournament. Sure enough, my first recruits to this team were Daniel and Jared, who by now was plying his trade on talk sport. Neil Manthorpe, who'd been shaking things up in South Africa for the better part of three decades, completed the ball-by-ball staff. Damien Fleming, Harsha Bogley, Derek Pringle and Jeremy Coney were also on board as expert summarisers and we would get to take it all the way to the final at Lords. It had been six years earlier that I'd never called cricket before. Then looking around on World Cup final day and realising how many other people had made their own way to that day, it felt like being part of something really, really wholesome and really good. I think it was eight graduates from Test Match Sofa in various guises, from, from Dan to Lizzie Ammon to, to the bear, uh, Nigel, who was producing the world feed. You've got myself is there, uh, Adam Collins is there, Lemon's on the, on the floor having a sleep at one stage, and Gary Naylor's in the box, and Dobell and Zoltzman, and all these random people that were 
drinking Stella cans on Test Match Sofa or talking over each other on White Line Wireless. All these guys up in the media centre broadcasting the greatest game of cricket we've ever witnessed. The grandstand finish up Lords, three needed, two balls, bolt to Stokes, block hole, down towards long off, they're going to come back for two, in comes the throw, has to run him out, has to run him out, and he does. It just felt like everything had come together in this you know, sort of beautiful moment. No one could quite believe that we were all there. It was a very special moment. The greatest World Cup final of all time is going to end on the final ball of the 50th over. Bolt on his way. England need two to win. He bowls. Stokes. Full. Takes one down the ground. Racing back is Mark Wood. The throw from Neesham. Down to Bolt. He runs him out. He runs him out. And Les Bolt has taken the bowls with his hand. We have a super over. We're going to extra time in the World Cup final on SEN Cricket. We've never seen anything like this in the history of our sport. I never wanted to be a cricket commentator, but being a cricket commentator, you suddenly get to feel there's a stake in history, and we were a part of that history. Here comes Archer to Guptill, two to win needed. He takes one of mid wicket. Coming back his nation, will he make it? Long run for Guptill, going to run hard. Butler's taking a steps. England have won the World Cup. England have won the World Cup in a super over, a tight super over. It doesn't matter. 15 apiece, victory for England for the first time ever. They are world champions in the most spectacular final. We've never seen anything like it at Lord's Damien Fleming. It is without doubt the greatest World Cup final of all time. I think anyone who was there that day would have actually felt the love that we all feel for each other. We should all be brought together by the cricket and then love what we're doing and having a great time doing it. And it was that's what that day was. We all had an incredible moment and it was a, it was a beautiful thing to be able to share that with so many of my friends. So what then, if anything, is the legacy of this decade of discombobulation? We have disrupted this industry and it needed to be disrupted. And I believe it's been disrupted for the better. I think it's more diverse now, has more diverse opinions, it has more diverse thinking. The only reason that any of this happened for me or for Adam was that the internet existed and that we started our own thing. We set our own way. Fundamentally, it comes down to the passion and dedication and integrity that... uh, that was always going to get ventures like Crickinvo in the first instance and, and the Sofa Gorilla Cricket in the latter instance over the line by hook or by crook. The last 10 years have been an absolute blast. and It's been something that has defined me, I suppose. I, I have no hesitation in saying the, the disruptors played their part. And, you know, the game is better for it, I, I believe, because, you know, if we don't talk about cricket, it dies. You cannot say that Crickinvo that Test Match Sofa, that the cricket Twitter community has not changed what cricket is and how it's broadcast and how it's written about and how the public get involved with it. You may want to downplay it and you may, may say, well, that, that Kimba, he, he annoys me. And, oh, Adam Collins, ugh. <laughs> Norcross. I can understand all those people saying that, but we have had an impact and we have changed things. And I think for the better and hopefully the next generation get a better run at it and they can be even more creative and even more weird and even more wacko than we were because that would be great to watch wouldn't it thank you to jeff lemon nigel henderson andrew miller and jared kimber for talking with us on this fifth episode of calling the shots before we go a reminder that calling the shots is being produced in partnership with the pinch hitter a fabulous new initiative During this time of global uncertainty, this exciting new magazine will be released once a fortnight, chock full of contributions from some of the best cricket freelance writers in the world. Call of the Shots arrives alongside each edition of The Pinch Hitter, which you can subscribe to at thenightwatchman.net. 
There's a link to the latest edition sitting in the show notes for this episode. It's being made on a pay-what-you-can-afford basis with all financial contributions going back into commissioning more brilliant cricket writing. In closing, thanks to Jay Mueller at Bad Producer Productions for making the show possible. Calling the Shots is another proud member of the Bad Producer family. For more of their shows, jump on badproducerproductions.com. That's all from us today on Calling the Shots. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks for the sixth and final part of our story when we cast our eye to how broadcasting might look in the 2020s. To play us out, an endorsement that Test Match Sofa received in 2013 from none other than President Barack Obama. I'll leave it at that. Until Until next time, bye bye for for now. My fellow citizens, I stand here today humbled by a test match so perfect. Test Match Sofer is a friend of each nation and every man, woman, and child who seeks a future of peace and dignity. Even though Test Match Sofer prefer leisure over work and seek only the pleasures of riches and fame. The question we ask today is whether Test Match Sofer is a force for good or ill. There are some who question the scale of our ambitions, who suggest that our system cannot tolerate too many big plans. But we will extend a hand if you are willing to unclench your fist. We cannot help but believe that the old hatreds shall someday pass. Test men, so we will not apologize for our way of life. Thank you. God bless you. God bless Test men, so free.